passages that are most tricky, I think, pastorally to maneuver are the ones that are the most familiar. Um, it's challenging. We begin to assume things about the passage or we uh, skip over details and th- to often take things for granted. We've heard the story a thousand times or um, that often comes at holiday seasons, particularly Christmas or resurrection. Some of the challenges, some of the most familiar things that we begin to kind of gloss uh, over in our eyes as we begin to hear it yet again and we think we know it. But I think we'll see it afresh together if we're able to see it as we've worked through Luke so long to get to it. It's a part of the conversation we've been having through Luke's gospel for a very long time. It's not a one-off story, like, here's a good thing to say. By the way, there's this scenario. Think about it for a minute. A prodigal son. Notice how important this passage is to the gospel of Luke, of what has been being said about salvation, about the kingdom, about humility. Um, There's an unmasking at the very beginning of our passage. I want to preach the whole passage that I hear, yeah, right, when you heard I was going all the way through chapter 15. I'm already behind in my introduction, so we're in trouble, but we'll work at it together. Um, I want to go all the way through 15 because it's really one parable. If you just look briefly, I'm stealing what's to come, but look at verse 3. So he told them this parable. Um, there is a group of people we worked on the text last week which is the cost of discipleship the call to hate your own life to hate the relationships that are codependent upon you that that you need and and, and they need this codependency, this reliance and he says forsake all of that other reliance and rely squarely upon me don't do halvesies where you're kind of prayerful, you're kind of reliant, but you're really codependent. It has to be that your faith rests squarely upon me. This is a non-negotiable. And, and as I expressed to you last week, and I continue to think, that's like probably the hardest passage for me, particularly. I think it's probably the hardest in the Gospels. Because it's not about who does it more. It's about either doing it or not. The weight of that that rests upon our heart and mind if we think carefully and honestly about it in relationship to where we really are is staggering. So much so that we have to ask something along these lines. Who are these people? Again, Please, think with me. If we're honest, we must ask, after hearing something like that, hate your own life. You have to in a moment, before you say, it's me, I say it all the time. Perhaps a little more self-reflexive thinking is in order. Who are those who hear the call of Christ like this? Leave even the closest relationships that you depend upon behind. So let's think in a moment. He's here. He's preaching this word to you. And he says, leave 
even the closest relationships that you have, leave them behind. Two, tear down all of the idols in your life that are built on self-promotion and self-protection. Tear them down, light them on fire, and forsake them. In case there is something that is missed, the third of the text is renounce all that you have. Renounce all that you have is the cost of your discipleship. We have a lot of stuff. Emotionally, relationally, materialistically, that's a huge demand. So the burden becomes, who is it that hears this call? And hears it in such a way to follow eagerly. Who are they who hear, leave everything, tear it all down and renounce it as gone? Never to be returned to. Who is it that hears such a call as a call to freedom? A call to freedom away from the slavery of self and sin. Who hears it that way? The answer is at the end of chapter 14. This is significant for the whole parable of chapter 15. Look at verse 35 in the very last section, and we dealt with this just briefly last week. Who hears such a demand and thinks, that's freedom, instead of thinks, this is slavery. Give up everything. That sounds like slavery, not to me. I hear freedom. Who is that person's? It's captured in the last statement of 35. It's he who has ears to hear. Who is it then that if we press the the picture a little further... Because this is what it's about. This is precisely what 14 and 15 are about. The details are right here for us to read. Who is it then that, that can hear it? He who has ears to hear it. Who has ears to hear it? Verse 1 of chapter 15. The answer is right here in the text. Verse 1. Now... The tax collectors and sinners can hear it. Do, do you see that, that? That's who has the ears to hear. Verse 15, uh, chapter 15, 1. Now, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, who's going to hear? The tax collectors. You know that group. The worst of the worst. What? They have ears to hear? How can that be? Yeah, so, so the worst people, and, and then the worst with the worst, like, you know, 
all the unexpected people, that vague group known as sinners. Now, the tax collectors, can you believe it? It's the tax collectors and the sinners. What were they doing when Jesus said, leave everything, burn it down, come to me? And coming to me means you will bear a cross. What did they do to that? Well, look at verse 1. They all drew near to that. They heard it, and they came to hear more of it in verse 1. You see, who can hear such weighty words as a call to faith? We've defined faith before. It, it, was, it was back in when we went through Ruth, and it was kind of that, that Sunday school um, acronym, the, the faith, forsaking all I take him. Who is it that can hear the call to faith? It is as clear as day in verse 1. Sinners can. Who is a sinner if we press it even further? At least in this text. What is the picture of a sinner? It is a picture of a person who knows they possess absolutely nothing. That's who hears the gospel as a call to freedom. But it's not just because they literally have nothing. But even if, according to external appearances, tax collectors, they seem to possess everything. They still came to the end of themselves. Yeah, I do cheat. Yeah, I do steal. Yeah, I do kind of get rich. Well, then you can't come. No. I see that riches on earth don't amount to redemption. I'm a sinner. And my things can't save me. Who hears such a call? A sinner hears the call. A sinner hears the call of the demands of the gospel and the call to count everything as loss and they truly hear freedom and grace. One who comes to the end of themselves and their very own resources, whether it be external dependencies on relationships, materialism, or an internal emptiness, where they come to the end of themselves and realize, I possess nothing of absolute value. Jesus says, then leave it all behind and let your faith rest on me. And they hear in that a call to freedom. Again, I don't know if you were able to go over the questions for our small group times together about what we have been discovering in Luke's gospel. 
Um, I, I pasted a quotation in the, in the questions um, at the end. I think it might have been question number five. And I uh, quizzed our group on the, I left three blanks in the quotation to see if anybody could fill it in. Um, our group wasn't very successful. So I'm just going to read the quote once more. Because they hear the severity of the call. Do you see? They know what's being said to them about leaving everything. And they don't think that means I'm a slave. They say I'm free for the very first time. Again, the words of Bonhoeffer. Such grace is costly. Because it calls us to follow. Let me just remind you, to leave everything, to tear it all down and to renounce it all. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. And a sinner, not because someone else says so, but because he or she realizes that's who I am, they hear that call indeed as grace. It's going to cost you. Oh, that doesn't matter. I would sell all that I have to purchase that field. I'll give up all of my merchandise to buy that pearl. The cost is a call of grace. Yet, with that picture in mind in verse 1, and verse, so, so hopefully you're seeing now, 35 is actually kind of, oozing down or connected through now in 15.1. These statements are working in tandem. We now know who is hearing. There is yet another group present always in the presentation of the gospel. Look at verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes. So you have these tax collectors and sinners who everyone is cue, everyone boo, boo, they were mentioned. Cue, tax collectors and sinners, boo, scribes and Pharisees, woo. So you have this, you have these, these groups, you stand for this, you're a sign of that. You are a sign of this. But Luke's gospel has constantly been doing the inversion. And it proves to do the same again. Because you have the crowd were jeering, drawing near to hear, forsaking all. They take him. But then you have the Pharisees and the scribes, this other group that were supposed to cheer. Look at the activity that they meet with the listening of the sinner. The sinner listens and the spiritually pre-programmed. Look in the text of verse 2. They grumble. They hear the call and the cost and they say, yeah, it is. It's slavery. I'm not doing that. No, do this. No, I'll find my own way. I don't like what you're doing and I don't like what you're saying. Right, so, so look carefully. The Pharisee and the scribes 
grumbled. And of course, we ask why. Like, why are, what, what's the issue with grumbling? Why are they so upset about what's taking place with those who have ears to hear? There's someone drawing near. They're grumbling at this person drawing near. Why? Look at the reasoning. This man, we're grumbling over what's taking place. What do you think's taking place? Sinners are drawing near to him. Right? Of course we should grumble. This is not how religious people act. You don't draw near to sinners, and you don't let them draw near to you. Why? What's the problem? And this is what kind of moves us towards the parable. What does it mean that Jesus receives them? The Pharisee and the scribe will grumble because they know precisely that those receiving this treatment have done nothing in and of themselves to earn it. That's grumble-worthy if you're a Pharisee. Are you kidding me? You're receiving these people? They have done nothing to earn it. Don't you know? They demerit it. They're the people we all hate for their demeritorious activity. And you're going to receive them and reward them? You see, the Pharisee says, the reason for my grumbling, the point, is that they are sinners. Jesus says, you're right. That is the point. They are sinners. We're already then being introduced in this tiny little episode of verse 1 and verse 2. We're being introduced to the younger brother and the eldest brother of what is to come in the prodigal son. You see, the younger brother, it, it kind of works, the, the, the parables are kind of working to crescendo. It's, it's, it's layering, and, and, he ta and he's working on one plane, and he's working on another plane, and then he's working climactically in the moment of expressing that there are two sons. But it's not the first time we know there are two sons. The two sons are right here before you. The young son, the younger brother, is the tax collector and the sinner. They haven't observed the moral laws. They haven't obeyed or followed the ceremonial rules of Israel. They've done what they want. They've followed the path of unrighteousness. They've played the part of wantonness. How dare you reward them? How dare you receive them? It's not just because he chooses to. 
It's not because he's wiping clean their slate. No, there's a repentance taking place. They heard, you must turn from everything and turn to me. And they say, I will. How do you know that? They drew near to him to hear more. They're the younger brother. And then there's the Pharisee and the scribes or the religious elite, the spiritually pre-programmed, the studious, the moralists. They represent the eldest brother. They have worked hard. They have studied. They have obeyed. They have colored inside the lines. They have followed and observed every religious aspect of the law. And all of the extenuating, stringent applications. Therefore, they despise mercy and graceful treatment to someone who has not. They are, they make a comment. I'll just jump over there, if you will. This is their comment of verse 2. It's the same comment of verse um, 29. If you look over in chapter 15, 29... These are they, working in tandem. The Pharisees of verse 2 make the claim of verse 29 with the eldest brother. But he answered his father, Lo, these many years. Right? What's taking place, and we'll get into it, maybe if I can get there. There's a celebration taking place, right? You know the story. He hears the music. He knows about the feast. And the father comes and says, hey, the servant says, hey, your dad is doing this. Oh, I heard the music. But he says to his father, how dare you receive these sinners and tax collectors? Lo, these many years... I have served you, terminology of slavery. I have slaved for you. I, and look at this startling claim. I never disobeyed your command. Do you see the self-righteousness? these many years, I have always colored inside the lines. You said jump, I said how high. Why? Because I wanted to lay claim upon your gifts because of my performance. You see, it's a rebellion through conformity and obedience. There's a rebellion in the heart. Look how you see it. And I've never disobeyed your command. Why are you even bringing it up? That's grounds. I'm laying the grounds for my argument of blessing. What does that have to do? What do you mean you never disobeyed my command? Listen to it. I've done it. I've done it so I can claim to have done it so that you must bless me. Me. In other words, 
I've earned it. Margot's fine. She loves it. She hears it whenever I visit her house all the time. She doesn't really mind. She knows it's Uncle Adam. Because notice how he argues the grounds of the obedience per performance because he says the complaint is underlying this. Yet, why would you even bring this up? What's your argument? What do you mean what's my argument? I've earned the favor that you're showing him of which he hasn't earned. Look at the righteousness. Yet, though I accumulate all of this merit, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate. I've paid for the goat in my performance. The eldest brother, in his argument of moralistic self-righteousness. There's more to the parable. The rest of our parable, um, I'll walk through beginning of verse 4 and following, but we will witness again, after the grumbling incident and the argument of the eldest brother, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, against the younger brother, the tax collectors and the sinners, he feels the need to tell them a parable to clarify their own grumbling to them, to help them see this is who you are and this is why you reject me. You reject grace. So our Lord moves to a parable, which again is an extended parable all the way through the situations that crescendos in the story of the two brothers who are present already in the text. But the next section that we need to look at in the parable is how we see God rejoicing over every sinner who repents. That's a significant piece of the text. The terminology of joy is spread throughout the first two parables. And it gives us a picture of here you have a younger brother and an older brother and you have a father that rejoices over every son who repents. The son of moralistic performance and behavior and the son of want and pleasure and rebellion and disobedience. The father stands rejoicing over each son, over each daughter who repents and believes. Heaven is filled with rejoicing. And you'll see that in the terminology of the text. It's not like, yeah, that works out. I'm glad you reasoned. It is exuberance. It is joy. It is celebratory all throughout the passage, including the father, as you know, celebrating with the fattened calf. I want to point you to the detail of intimacy, however, in the parables where we begin Consider, again, don't, don't think of it as a study in parable and, and then kind of it's, we're going to dissect the text, but consider it also from a personally intimate experience. I would push probably that if we were to look at the church, not just Redeemer, but I'm saying the church that we're united with, <clears throat> there certainly are two brothers, right? In every assembly, there are two brothers or, or, or two ways of living. I, I think that the church often has um, the eldest brother most present within it. 
it's, it's worth considering. And the Father calls you home. And he rejoices when you hear and when you come. Notice the intimacy involved in the text right away. Verse 3, so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost. Drop down to verse 8. You see the numbers game, right? Verse 8. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. You see, consider as we move forward in the parable the significance of number one. I'm not going to give you a sneaky theology of numbers. I'm saying recognize the obvious intimacy of the Lord's concern. There is but one lost sheep in in the beginning parable. There is but one lost coin. You see, grace isn't simply calculating numbers. Rather, God's grace is that every life matters to God. That's the point. You don't need to, from a father's standpoint, he doesn't need to lose sufficient sheep in order to finally care and maybe go see them. He doesn't need to lose sufficient coinage in order to finally be moved to go after it. Well, it's all right. I'd only lost a few. It's fine. It's not a big deal. A few got out of the pen. I still have plenty. The initial intimacy of the passage is, let me ask you, which one of you, if you lost one, would go and find it. R.C. Sproul makes an interesting comment. He says, in this particular audience, none would think twice about moving heaven and earth to find a single lost sheep. The obvious answer, right, of the passage is, how many of you And the answer is, well, none of us. We would all go find that one. The obvious question then to me, um, for our sake and for my own sake, in thinking about the intimacy of a father who will search high and low, who will pursue only one, is to probingly ask yourself, with six billion people on the earth, give or take, whatever that actual number is, in other words, with a lot of people around, have you ever thought that your life, your singular struggles, your vacuous hardship that you endure, 
doesn't really matter to God. On a global scale, sure. On an individual intimacy, I don't know. How deeply does he care for me? Me, not my neighbor, me. How much does he love me? How much does he care? Well, if he lost one, he would come and find it. One. If you've ever struggled with that and you think, I, I just, I wrestle with that, I draw you to this text again. One sheep is all it takes. One coin is all it takes to unleash all of his pursuit. One. Very obviously, Jesus uses this natural impulse of the shepherds. How many of you? All of us would. Right. Yes, exactly. To express his pursuit of a single sinner in need of saving grace. How many of you would do that? We all would, right? So would I. But further notice, I want to draw your attention beyond the intimacy. How many, does my life, me, Adam, individually, just me, does my life matter to God? I would leave everything and pursue just one child in need. But notice the intensity of the search. Again, how irresistibly does God pursue you with his grace? How intense really is the renewal? Look at verse 4 and 5 again, and, and you'll see. I'll read the text. Verse 4, what man of you, which one of you standing here, having a hundred sheep, if you lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country? And go after one that is lost. Well, how long will you go after it? <clears throat> Which one of you will not go into the country looking? How long? Until he finds it. That's how long. Until he finds it. Look at verse 8. And, or, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, will not light a lamp, sweep the house, seek diligently? Well, and then kind of give up. no. Mm -mm. She pursues it until she finds it. She pursues it diligently until she finds it. And then look over in the text with the father of the two sons. The climactic scribes, Pharisees, tax collectors, sinners. The pursuit of grace. Verse 20 and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, that is a great picture because the emphasis of the son being so far away, so far removed, falls upon the running and endurance of the father in pursuit. Look, the range is for our purposes of grasping. It's not like he was at the end of the driveway. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. 
He is the lost sheep. He is the lost coin. And his father saw him when he was still way away. And then notice when the father sees the, the, the son in brokenness. Man, he would have looked like, they say, 10 miles of bad highway at this point physically. He's been eating pig slop for we're not sure how long this has been going on. He's returning and the father sees him. And what is the, the reflexive emotion of the father? Compassion. And the father ran and embraced him. And he kissed him. And then verse 24, he began to celebrate. You see, the search of grace in your life is carried on until it is successful. The Father pursues you through the call of His Son until the work is accomplished. You have a picture of a good shepherd in the first parable or the first layer of the parable where the good shepherd, he looks, Psalm 23, until he finds it. And his response of finding it, look in the text just briefly, verse 5. And when he has found it, well, how do we know he's going to find it? He keeps looking until he does. You mean he cares about me? Yeah, he only lost one. And he looked until he found it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. The good shepherd returns in triumph. Verse 6, when he comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors. That is, everybody saying to them, I'm rejoicing, so rejoice with me. I have found my single sheep that was lost. How did you find him? I searched diligently for him, and I didn't quit until I found him. Rejoice with me. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one who? Over one. Just over one. Younger brother. Just over one elder brother who comes to his senses as well. Over one sinner. Man, woman, child, one who comes to the end of him or herself. That is, who repents. Then over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. We will always be One of two brothers. 
we will either pursue and make arguments for the grounds of God's blessing based upon moralistic conformity and external obedience. We will always be on that path. Or we will be a brother, a younger brother, of wantonness and pleasure-seeking, pursuing, as the text says, worldliness. We will always be one of two brothers until we come to the end of ourselves. Having ears to hear, we hear the call to freedom. We hear the words of Christ. If you're heavy laden, burdened, broken, come to me and I will give you rest from your moralistic pursuits that end in nothing but bitterness or from your disobedient worldly life. Come to me. I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, Father,